0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews in chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. we're going to turn the page on chapter nine and continue this study of really what, what, what we're looking at this evening is not anything new. The, the, the points that are drawn out in this text uh, we've already looked at. Uh, it's kind of a summary statement of what we've read in chapter seven, eight and nine. Uh, basically everything that he tells us here has already been said in those previous three chapters, but that doesn't mean that we can check out or we can skip over it. Uh, He has been working through a very careful series of arguments to establish for us the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. And in this particular case, supremacy of Jesus' sacrifice and of his priestly ministry to the sacrifices of the Old Covenant and the priestly ministry of Levitical priests. And now he wraps it all up with a declaration of the finality and the perfection of the work of Jesus Christ. So, please follow as I read Hebrews chapter 10. I'll read the verse 18 verses. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declared the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then, he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. This is the reading of God's Word. Now, Four things we want to draw out of this text. I've kind of organized in these four headings. First is the insufficiency of the law. And the second is that Jesus' sufficient sacrifice was always God's plan. It's not plan B. It was always God's plan A. And then thirdly, we're going to look for a moment at the power of Jesus' single, once and for all sacrifice. And then finally, uh, just a restatement that Jesus' sacrifice established for all time, the new covenant. So, we've already established all of these, but we're going to look at them again and just a little, from a little bit different perspective. It's, remember we've talked about, it's like holding a diamond up to the light and looking at the way the the light refracts through the different uh, uh, facets on that diamond. So, we want to consider the different facets of the glorious gospel truth of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ tonight. And the first thing I want you to see is the insufficiency of the law. The writer is telling us, Uh, he's equating the law of Moses and the Old Covenant, and he says that this this Old Covenant, this law that was delivered to Moses spelled out the terms of the Old Covenant, which included those sacrifices that are required day after day, and then on the Day of Atonement, year after year. And that really is the emphasis here, the annual Day of Atonement uh, yearly sacrifices that were made. And he he emphasizes to us, these sacrifices are not sufficient to accomplish the primary purpose for which they were given. They were an act of worship, yes, but they were given for a purpose. And that purpose was to take away sins. To pay for the sins of God's people. To take away their guilt. To satisfy God's holy and righteous justice. In short... The purpose of these sacrifices was to accomplish atonement. That's why it's called the Day of Atonement. It was to procure, to secure for God's people justification, to make perfect those who draw near. And that's exactly what he says the law and the sacrifices of the Old Covenant could not accomplish. Now, we saw in chapter 9 that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins we read here in Hebrews 10. So, these sacrifices under the old covenant can never accomplish justification. They're merely shadows of the reality of the good things to come in the new covenant under the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, and His work is, constitutes the, the good things to come, the blessings secured for us in that new covenant sealed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we speak of these realities, if you look in, uh, in verse 1, the, the, the law is a shadow of the good things to become instead of the true form of the realities, these realities. The true form is, that's, that's the Lord Jesus, and these realities speak to justification, speak to Atonement for sins. Speak to our reconciliation to God. Speak to the once and for all forgiveness of our sins. And every year, year after year, on the Day of Atonement, Israel would set aside whatever else they're doing, and they would observe that holy festival. And the priest would offer that sacrifice, first for his own sin, but then for the sins of the people, in, in, within the veil, at the, through the Holy of Holies, or in the Holy of Holies, on the very mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And for over a thousand years, this ritual was practiced, repeating year after year after year. And yet, at no time did any one or all of those observations, all those celebrations of the ritual of the Day of Atonement, never did they cleanse a single sin. Never did they reconcile a single sinner to God. Never could they provide Justification. Tom Schreiner, uh, in his comments, said it's it's these uh, the system of sacrifices is like a merry-go-round that never stops. Uh, you're just going around and around and around, and you can never get off. And that's where those who trusted in the old covenant priestly system found themselves. And he tells us here the repetition. The fact that it's repeated year after year, is, is, uh, it proves the ineffectiveness of the law of the old covenant to accomplish that forgiveness. Otherwise, verse 2, he asks the question, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin? He's saying if the, if the sacrifices of the day of atonement had been effective, why do they continue year after year? If the people of God were truly cleansed by that sacrifice of a bull or a lamb or a goat, why was it necessary to continue them repeatedly over and over, year after year? So far from delivering the people of God from their sin and from their guilt. Verse 3 tells us it's a reminder over and over of our sins. And how, how grievous and how heavy that reminder is apart from the true forgiveness that comes to us in Jesus Christ. And in, in verse uh, 3, he, he, he states in an unequiv- unequivocal terms, why is it uh, that these Old Testament sacrifices or Old Covenant sacrifices are insufficient? Because verse 3 says, verse 4 rather, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Apart from the shedding of blood, there's no cleansing of sin, but that's not the right blood. It's not just any blood that'll accomplish the task. It had to be the blood of a suitable substitute, a suitable sacrifice, a worthy substitute to take our place, to bear the wrath of God, and to give us perfect righteousness. And that could come from one and one only, the sinless, spotless Son of God, the Lord Jesus. So, we come to the second point, which is this sacrifice, this perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, that was always God's plan from the very beginning. You remember in Genesis 3, when God is pronouncing judgment on the serpent, he says, uh, He says, speaks of one who will come. He says, you will strike him on the heel, but he will crush your head. And theologians call that the proto-evangelicum, the very first declaration of the gospel of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and his defeat of sin and death. But here in verses 5 and following, the author is quoting for us from Psalm and chapter 40. And he's taking these words and he's placing them in the mouth of Jesus Christ. It's a Psalm of David. And if you go back and read Psalm 40, the, the, the context is not about the sacrificial system at all. And yet, because the, the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these texts, uh, particularly the psalms, were interpreted Christologically, it can be applied in a way that you and I might not have anticipated, simply reading that psalm in its own context. So, here the psalm uh, 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 employs the words of Psalm, or the, the writer of Hebrews employs the words of Psalm 40 and says, uh, from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure, Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. Of course, we know that Jesus was keenly aware of all that was written about him in the scroll of the book, the Old Testament prophecies that all pointed toward Messiah. But he puts these these, these, uh, statements that David made of his own experience in the very mouth of Jesus himself and first of all tells us that Jesus came to exercise a unique priestly ministry. The, the Levitical priests offered burnt offerings, these sacrifices year after year, day after day. But in reality, he says, God took no pleasure in those offerings. Now, that statement, he took no pleasure might confuse some. Did that mean they were being disobedient? Does it mean they were being rebellious? Well, in Isaiah 1.11, God says, I've had enough of these sacred festivals. And the reason wasn't because of the insufficiency of the Old Covenant. It was because of hypocrisy that had permeated so much of Israel. So much of those practices was no longer, were no longer being carried out in sincerity. They were uh, mere formalities that were carried out hypocritically. But that's not what we're dealing with here. Even in its most sincere form, these sacrifices were insufficient to accomplish the purposes they were actually intended to accomplish. The priests were not being disobedient. They were doing exactly what God told them to do. Verse 8 says, these were offered according to the law. But it was never God's plan for these sacrifices to satisfy His justice. It was never God's plan to accomplish justification through the sacrifices of the old covenant system, the blood of bulls and goats and so forth. They were simply shadows pointing to the reality, preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, the priestly work was never done. Year after year, they're standing there over and over and over again, continuing the very same sacrifices. But Jesus came. He lived perfect life. And as He died in our place, He cried out, it is finished. That's the, that's the title of my message this evening. It is finished. It's the triumphant declaration of our Lord that He has fully accomplished all that is necessary to satisfy the wrath of God for the sake of those to whom He has given His love, to those He's set his heart upon. He declared that his offering was accepted by His father, that God was pleased with that sacrifice. His body, His blood were a suitable substitute, bearing the wrath of God in our place. He suffered God's wrath so that you and I would not have to. He was a worthy substitute. If you look in Revelation chapter 4, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And we see that cry in heaven. We'll look at that again in just a moment. But, but what you see here is there's, this, there's this, this, God is pleased with the body that you have pre- pre- uh, prepared for me, for, for the Lord Jesus is saying that. Now, again, the writer of Hebrews is putting these words in Jesus' mouth. And I think there's there's an allusion to the incarnation clearly when it says when Jesus came, but a body you have prepared for me, I think speaks to that physical body when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and it was that physical body that had to, uh, it was in that body he had to learn obedience through what was suffered. He had to accomplish a perfect human righteousness and then he had to bear the wrath of God and shed his own blood. It was that body that Jesus took to Himself in the Incarnation that was offered back to God the Father, offered back to, the, to fulfill the righteousness and the justice of God, He, in His body, became a suitable or an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. Now, I said a moment ago, Jesus' sacrifice was not plan B. It's not that plan A was this old covenant sacrificial system, but the people rebelled, they rejected, they, did, they failed, they didn't keep their, 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 their uh, responsibility for the covenant. And so God rejected them, and then he says, now it's time to inaugurate plan B. It was, Jesus' coming was always plan A. That was always what God had in mind from the very outset. And all of the Levitical system was simply a shadow pointing toward Foreshadowing, for uh, preparing the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came, when he died, he could proclaim, It is finished. No high priest could ever go into the Holy of Holies and perform his priestly duty on the Day of Atonement and come back in and say, It is finished. We never have to do that again. Year after year, because it was never finished until the Lord Jesus Himself accomplished it. That's why that song in heaven rings out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And we read in just a few verses before that in Revelation chapter 5, they, they cry out, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus is worthy to be praised because his sacrifice was worthy to cleanse us of our sins. So when we read in verses 9 and 10, behold, I've come to do your will. That's not a. a declaration of plan B. It's plan A from the outset. God, God's will always was that His Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus, who within the eternal council of redemption uh, determined that the Father would elect for Himself a people to be His very own, and the Lord Jesus would come and redeem those people, pay for our sins, to make atonement for us, And that in time, his spirit would come and quicken, make alive each one of those for whom Christ has died and draw us to himself. Jesus would come. He would take a body prepared for him. He would live a perfect life. He would die an atoning death in our place. He would rise triumphant over sin and death. He would ascend to the right hand of the Father and he would sit down having accomplished fully his priestly ministry of sacrifice and continue to intercede for us as our great high priest before the Father. Now, verse 9, we see the old covenant was done away with when the new covenant was established. Verse 9, he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Now, remember, let's take a step back for a moment. What was the purpose of the book of Hebrews? Why was it written? It was written by a faithful pastor. We don't know who, uh, I'm intrigued by the idea it could have been Barnabas because there's so much about encouragement there. Or it could have been Apollos who is showing that Christ is indeed, uh, fulfills the requirement, the Old Testament prophecies regarding Messiah who had to die and rise again for our sins. Those were messages that Acts tells us were attributed to Apollos and to Barnabas. Could have been one of them, could have been somebody else, we don't know. But he tells us or He writes this epistle to Jewish believers who are sore oppressed, who are in some cases tempted to leave the church and go back to the fold of Judaism, to abandon that pure gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the, and the, the, the priestly ministry that Christ is accomplishing, saying it is finished, and go back to this endless cycle of priestly activity that never accomplished anything for any true, eternal good. So he's trying to convince them, don't go back. Now, as I look out here this evening, I don't think there's a single person here who is tempted to leave Christianity and place yourself under a so-called saving message of Judaism. There is no Judaistic or no Jewish sacrificial system anymore. In 70 AD, the Roman Empire came in, the Roman army came in, and just completely leveled Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and the sacrifices ceased, and they have never been resumed. So even if one was to leave the church at this point, there's no other sacrifice under Judaism any longer. The shedding of the blood of the bulls and goats and the lambs came to, be, to an end. And it's never been restored and never will be. I don't believe. A number of months ago, well, let me say, there there are sincere Christians who believe there's great benefit to observing Jewish festivals, to, for instance, the Passover. Of course, the Passover lamb is Jesus Christ. And they go through all the different elements of the Passover meal and show how each one of those point to Jesus and the gospel and the new covenant. That's a wonderful thing. That's fine. I recently met with a brother who was telling me that he believed the big problem with the church today is that we've abandoned all of the Jewish festivals, that we ought to be observing all of those Jewish feasts and, and, and seeing how all of them find their fulfillment in Christ. And that is the reason there's so much division and so much uh, uh, schism and so much compromise in the church today because we've ad- abandoned that Jewish Old Covenant practice that was intended to be more fully embraced in the New Covenant. And as we talked further, he made clear that he is of the belief that one day Jesus will come back, and this is a sort of a dispensational view, that he will establish on this earth for a time this millennial kingdom where he will reign and and there will be this massive uh, uh, conversion of the Jews, so far so good, and there will be the rebuilding of the temple and the resurrection, as it were, of the sacrificial system. That the temple will be, ra- will be uh, built back and the sacrifices will be resumed. And I said, why in the world would they resume the sacrifices? What's the purpose? And he said, well, to, to fulfill the worship of God. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. The purpose of the sacrifices was shedding of blood for the cleansing of sin. Oh, no, 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 no. No, that, that was never about sin. It was always about something else. You what? Know, Brother, go read Hebrews. Hebrews is abundantly clear. The purpose of the sacrifice is for the cleansing of sin, and it didn't work. Never, ever, because it all points to Jesus. And once Jesus has fulfilled it, the old has been done away with. We left without having resolved that issue in his mind, but it was more resolved in mine than ever before. When Jesus offered his body once and for all, we who are trusting him were made pure before God. There was never any need for further sacrifices to be made after the pattern of the old covenant. They were done away with. And that's plan A from the very beginning. Well, I want you to see further. Uh, our third major point is looking at the power of, Of this single sacrifice. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at a service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Again, we have this contrast between the Levitical sacrifices and the sacrifice of Jesus. And the Levitical priests, it was an exercise in futility. They're engaged in the same practice year after year and it never, ever accomplished. Its intended purpose to take away sin. But in contrast, verse 12, we read But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, meaning that sacrifice was accomplished, it was received, it was complete, it was sufficient. He offered for all time a single sacrifice, and as we said earlier on the cross, as he died in his last breath, he declared, it is finished. The priest standing here day after day, year after year, he never gets to sit down. Moms, have you ever uh, just felt totally worn out? You've been cleaning and cooking and all, uh, all day long, and you say, I just wish I could sit down. I remember my mom saying that. Can you imagine a priest, day after day after day, never being able to sit down, not the fatigue of having to stand up for a long time, but just what it symbolizes, the futility over and over, never fully accomplishing what he'd come to do. But by contrast, Jesus gave a single sacrifice, and when that was complete, he died, he rose from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Four times in the book of Hebrews, we find this language that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, or that Jesus is seated, that he is on the throne of grace. A tremendous emphasis in the book of Hebrews reminding us it truly is finished. Jesus is that perfect priest, but he's also our king. Look at verse 13 once again. He says he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is a reference back to Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. And that is a messianic psalm emphasizing here, first of all, the kingly office of Messiah. If you recall in the Old Testament, there were three offices where the anointing of oil Symbolized the empowering of the Holy Spirit. One was the king. And when David, you remember Samuel comes to, uh, to the home of Jesse and says, I'm supposed to come and find the new king. And, and he looks at all the sons and finally uh, David is brought in and he says, this is the one. And he says he's a man after God's own heart and he anoints him with oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon him to enable him to do the work of being a king. But there's also anointing for the prophet and there's anointing for the priest but in Messiah we have all three offices prophet priest and king and you know what the word Messiah means don't you it means the anointed one so all of the offices are combined in one person and one person only the Lord Jesus Christ and so here we have in Psalm 110 the kingly office that all of his enemies would be his footstool but then it was just a few, minute, few verses later where the Lord says, I've sworn and, and won't change my mind, you're a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So we find this Messiah, this messianic king is also a priest and a priest of an entirely different order from that of the Old Covenant Levitical priests. The writer of Hebrews quotes this verse, uh, this... Uh, uh, In Hebrews 1, 3, he says, of whom else did God say, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Declaring the absolute uniqueness and supremacy of Jesus Christ. Here he's employing it for a different purpose. Here he's employing it to show that his ministry was complete, his earthly ministry and his sacrifice was complete and the victory truly is his. And it reiterates that point in verse 14 where he says, for by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One author calls that one of the most famous verses in all the epistles, all this epistle. By a single offering, by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now think about that. He perfected, that's complete, are being sanctified still in process what's he talking about well there's there's some temporal references here aren't there a single offering refers back to that time on, uh, on, on the cross of Calvary when Jesus gave himself once and for all time and then that perfected is that completed work it is finished the justification that is applied to our hearts and lives the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ we're perfected for all time but there's that ongoing work of sanctification. We are being sanctified. We're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. All of that was secured in that one and once for all single offering when Jesus said, it is finished. He declared us perfect for all time because of his imputed righteousness. He for all time declares us forgiven because he has taken upon himself our sins. Or, uh, his, he's taken upon himself our sins. And this faithful pastor writing to these beleaguered Jewish believers sums up the priestly work of our Savior in this one final point. He says in verses 15 and following that uh, this, ap- this sacrifice of our Lord Jesus is- establishes for us this new covenant, replacing the old. Tom Schreiner again uh, says the final forgiveness that was promised in the new, in the new covenant is realized in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The author takes us back first to that promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 33. This is the covenant I will make with them in those days. After those days, says the Lord, I'll put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. He doesn't quote the entire uh, declaration or promise of the old covenant. He doesn't talk about no longer will one man say to another, "Know the Lord, they all know me from the least to the greatest. He does that in a previous chapter, but here he's summing up. And I want you to see he's attributing here this promise to the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. And then he says, this is what he says. And he cites these blessings, this prophecy of the new covenant. That God will give us a new heart. That God will take away our sins. And he says, the Holy Spirit said that, and not only did he say it then, but he attributes the application of it in this particular context to the Holy Spirit. The writer is conscious that he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this is Scripture. Now, it's been said that we live in the information age, right? We're bombarded with more information than we could possibly process. For the longest time, I carried a flip phone And when the spring in my flip phone broke, I called it a flop phone. But I resisted getting a smartphone because I I, I told my son, I don't want a phone that's smarter than I am. Uh, But I caved. And it's amazing how much information can come flowing to us through these tiny little devices. And where does that information come from? It comes from every corner and every conceivable Origin. Some of the information is good. Some of the information is from the source, the father of all lies. And it's terrible. Some of it is where Satan is disguising himself as an angel of light, seeking to deceive and lead astray those, even if it were possible, the very elect of God. Information saying, here you'll find Fulfillment. Here you'll find satisfaction. Here you will find the, 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 the very uh, cravings of your soul being satisfied. And yet, it's not true. Satan is constantly trying to distract us and divert us away from the Lord Jesus Christ. This flood of messages that bombard our minds, that tell us, here, 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 trying to direct us in who knows how many directions. Young people, please listen to me. You are susceptible. This whole idea, I have to know what everybody else knows. I have to be uh, in tune with all the latest trends. I have to uh, be up on all the latest whatever that comes down the pike. And those of us who've had a few years that remember how we were buying into some of those same things, and we look back and go, no, what was it that seemed so very important? Because it's not. It's a diversion. Taking us away from what God the Holy Spirit has declared, this is what's true. This is what matters. This is what will bring true forgiveness for your sins. This is what will bring true satisfaction for the very deepest longings of your soul. This is what you need. God the Son has, met, has made the greatest possible sacrifice to meet the greatest need you and I have. The forgiveness of our sins, the cleansing of our consciences, the renewal of our hearts, the destruction of our enemies, and the eternal security of our final destination, our inheritance in glory with Christ. That's what we need. That's what we need. We don't need… To be hip or cool or whatever else the the latest terms are out there. We don't need the latest trends. We need Christ. And we need to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us in his word, telling us these things. And so we read in verse 18, this finality. Where there's forgiveness of these, these sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. The conclusion of the matter is your sin's forgiven. There's no longer any offering for sins. Jesus has come to put the Levitical priests out of their jobs. That's one of the, that's one of the uh, problems that we encounter as the development of new technology comes along. A new technology comes along that, that replaces the work that many people have done in manual labor, and they find themselves laid off because now it's been automated, and a machine is doing their job. Well, here, it's not a machine, it's Christ. He has accomplished that purpose, and the Levitical priests are out of a job. Their services are no longer required. That entire elaborate old covenant sacrificial system has now been rendered obsolete and our sin problem has been solved once and for all. That statement has powerful implications for you and for me. Please hear this. If it's true, if it's true that God has promised he will remember your sins no more, That means you can walk in the freedom of a cleansed conscience, even if you've not been perfect, even if you know that you failed. You don't have to labor under a burden of guilt and shame. Whatever you may have done in the past, however grievous your sins might have been, whatever human wreckage you may have caused, God says, I will remember your sins no more. They've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you can walk in freedom. If Jesus has fully and finally paid for your sins, there is nothing you need to do to try to make amends with you and God. There's nothing you need to do to try to get back on God's good side when you somehow feel like you've gotten on his wrong side. We sing the hymn, we sang it recently, Not in Me. Think about this, as it applies to the finished work of Christ and our natural tendency to try to do something to get back on God's good side, something to, uh, to make amends, something to rely upon ourselves than to rely upon the grace of God in the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, no list of sins that I have not done. I didn't do this. I, you know, remember the, the, the Pharisee. I, thank you that I'm not like other people, you know, just, uh, that publican over there. No list of sins I've not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I'm not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. What's your hope of righteousness? Nothing you can do, nothing you need to do. There's nothing that you or I could ever do to gain God's favor, and there's nothing we need to do. In fact, to try to do something is really an offense against his grace, isn't it? It's to say, Jesus, when you said it's finished, I don't think it was completely finished. I think there's a little bit I need to add to. it. No, no, absolutely not. The song goes on. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. When you really blow it, when you sin and you know it, and you feel terrible. Do you you feel like there's something you need to do to get back in God's good graces? Do you feel the need to perform some kind of some kind of penance? Now we repent of sins, which means we turn, but is there something, kind of penance we need to do? We need to uh, do some kind of spiritual performance, a certain amount of spiritual discipline, a certain amount of reading or praying or, or, or something in order to feel like now my conscience can be clean again. Really? Do you feel like you're kind of in spiritual timeout for a time until you've done what it takes to make those amends we read here that the Lord Jesus by a single sacrifice has perfected for, for how long? Until you fail again? No. He is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And that means there's nothing that you can do to add to it, and there's nothing you need to do to add to it. Again, the song goes on. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give, can cleanse my conscience or cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live, but Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. Please hear me. It's not enough to believe these truths. It's not enough to recite them, to talk about them, even to to sing about them. When Jesus said it is finished, that's the greatest possible declaration of God's love to us. It's the manifestation of his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when we understand something of the love of God for us in Jesus Christ, our only response must be to love him back. We love, 1 John four nineteen says, because he first loved us. So with that in mind, Jesus' saving work should elicit in us a genuine and a lively love for Him. And we pray that it will be so. I want to share with you from uh, a little bit from a, a book that has made a, a big impact on my life years ago. Uh, Thomas Vincent wrote The True Christian's Love for the Unseen Christ, and it's based on 1 Peter 4, verse 18, or excuse me, 1 Peter 4, 8. Peter's been reflecting on the glories of the salvation that we have in Christ. And he says this, he says, Though you have not seen him, Peter, remember, had seen Christ. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He is unseen and yet you love him. And so Vincent writes in his book, The True Christian's Love for the Unseen Christ, he he writes this. He tells us that Jesus knows the power, the impact that true love for him has in our hearts. And he says that love will engage all the other affections of his disciples for him. That if he has their love, if he has our love, our desires will be chiefly after him. Their delights will be chiefly in him. Their hopes and expectations will be chiefly from him. He knows that love will engage and employ for him all the powers and faculties of their souls. My heart's desire tonight as we think about what Christ has done for us, all that he's done for us, and the fact that it is finished, is that would inflame in us a new and renewed love for Christ because he has first loved us. He has loved us so greatly that we might understand something of that love. And he goes on, he, Vincent talks about how that, that awareness of our love for him that, that in, in impacts our thoughts, our understandings, our memories, our consciences, our wills, our very senses, how, how we look at the world, how we hear the world, what we say, what we, what we do. He says, if we truly love the unseen Christ, all these faculties will be engaged and employed to serve and honor him. If we truly love Christ, he is our all. It becomes a delight to serve him, to honor him. And he goes on, he says, we'll be ready to do anything he requires. We'll even be willing to suffer for his name. If that's what he calls us to do. So my heart for you tonight, my prayer is that you will hear these words, it is finished. And that will remind you of what Christ has done for you. And there's nothing else you need to do. It's finished. You don't need to add anything to it. All we need to do is understand more deeply the dimensions of it so that we might believe it, that we might love him, even as he's loved us. And loving him, having that that flame kindled in our hearts, all that we long for will terminate, will be directed to our Savior, Jesus.